Preacher Vance Havner said it like this, Revival is falling, with Je- falling in love with Jesus all over again. I think that's what we need as believers. To be continuously falling in love with God. Continuing falling in love with our Savior. Continuing falling in love with the Holy Spirit. And falling in love with God's Word just over and over again. And sometimes... That's hard to do because we can kind of get into the rut, we can get into the routine, we can get into things that we're kind of accustomed to and used to, but that's what God wants. He wants to revive us. He wants to awaken us to his word, to his truth, and to who he is. And that's how revival will happen to us individually. And it has to start there. We've said this every single week. Revival has to start with the individual. Then it flows into our families, it flows into the life of the church, and ultimately a flow into the community, into the nation. In our series, we're looking at the life and reign of King Josiah. Just as kind of a reminder to get our, our brains and hearts ready for what's going to happen this morning, you look back in verse 1 of chapter 34, and we're told that Josiah became king at the age of 8. He became king because... His father's servants, who was the king before him, decided that it would be better for him to die, King Amon, and this eight-year-old to become king at that time. By the age of 16, Josiah began to personally seek the Lord. Even though his father and his grandfather before him had nothing to do with the Lord, wanted nothing to do with the Lord, Josiah made the decision. By the time he reached the age of 20, it came upon his heart to begin to purge and to cleanse not only the southern kingdom where he was reigning in Jerusalem, but to cleanse Judah and all the nation and all the people of God, to cleanse the land. And at the age of 26, he sought to rebuild, repair, and renovate the temple, which was known as the house of the Lord, because Josiah knew that if the people were going to seek after God, they needed to come into his house to worship him and hear his word. Josiah looked out at his world as he began to get older, looked at what he was living in and decided that he was going to take action with what he was seeing and what, it, what was happening. And through his personal pursuit of God, he was awakened to the presence of God. He was awakened to the love of God and fell more in love with him. He, he began to hate the sin that was surrounding the people of God and that he could see throughout the nation, which his grandfather and father actually helped build. He hated the sin in the people's lives that he was called to lead, and he developed a hunger for God that would eventually overflow into the people that he was called to be keen over. When it comes to an awakening and revival, it isn't just for us, but like I said, it has to start with us personally. I mean, we have to want it. We have to seek after it. We have to pray for it. Maybe fast for it. We have to have a personal hunger for God, which will eventually flow into the people that God has placed in our lives. And so what we're doing with our passage this morning, and what we've been doing is looking at King Josiah, is we're looking at the principles to the awakening which happened in the nation of Israel. And we're looking to apply those into our life and apply it into the life of the church. Last week we left off with the renovation of the temple happening. And as all the people gathered to be a part of this master project, we're told that they found the book of the law of the Lord that was given through Moses. 
This book was most likely the first five books of the Old Testament, what is known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, but it was definitely the book of Deuteronomy. The question should be, a question that came up as my wife and I were driving home last week is, well, what happened to the book? How did they lose it? Why did they lose it? The simplest answer as we go into the history of Israel that we read through this book is that for the last 57 years, the kings before Josiah didn't use it. And so the people didn't use it, didn't realize that they needed it, and therefore they lost it. Saying that it was found meant that they didn't even know where it was. It was just in the temple, meaning the people weren't even going to the temple to hear the word of the Lord. Yet when the book was found, it was taken immediately to King Josiah. Look at me in verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Anakim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do to all that is, according to all that is written in the book. I mentioned last week King Josiah is probably the most righteous man within the nation at this point in time. And when he heard the words of the law, it broke him. It humbled him to a point of repentance. The tearing of clothes was an outward display of this emotion. King Josiah understood what had been found and whose words were written in this book. He understood the book contained the voice of God. Which brings us to our first application. For awakening to happen in our life, we have to awaken to the authority of the word. What we think and ultimately believe about the Bible will dramatically and drastically change our lives either for the good or the bad. The Word of God will change the way we view church. The Word of God will change the way we view Christianity. It will change our relationship with God. It will change how we manage our finances. It will change how we raise our children and manage our families and how we lead them. It will change How we view the world, that's the power of the Word of God. If this is just a book, then it just has some good ideas. If this is just a book, then it just has some good thoughts that maybe we should try to live by, maybe we should try to apply. But if we believe this to be the Word of God, then it gives us a definitive direction for our life. Several years ago, I was introduced to the world of Ikea. If you're familiar with Ikea, it's basically a place where you can go buy furniture that comes in a box, and they have some other trinkets and things like that. Now, I I am not a carpenter by any means. I'm not a plumber by any means. I know my limits. I always thought it would be a cool thing to learn how to do carpentry. I don't know about plumbing, but learn how to build stuff with my hands. But I, I know that that's not who I am at this moment in time. I'm happy that I can unclog a sink with Drano. 
that's about the level I go to. And so at this stage of my life, I understand what I am and what I am not. But I was introduced to the world of Ikea. And I know you can go other places. You can buy furniture in a box and you put them together. And they have that little thing on the box that says, some assembly required. Massive understatement. Because every time I try to put one of these things together, I always get it where it looks like the picture, but then I've got all these extra pieces that I'm sure were somewhat important for something, but I can't figure out which step I missed. When my, our daughter was young, we, we bought her a princess dollhouse and got it for Christmas, and I, I began to get it out and began to put it together. And as I got it together, I had all these leftover pieces of plastic all over the place, which, again, I'm sure was important, but I couldn't figure out where does it go? What is it supposed to do? Why do I have extra pieces? I bring this up because this is what happens when we don't hold to, hold to the Word of God as the authoritative Word of God. We end up with a whole bunch of pieces, and that what we have in our life may work, but it's not exactly how God wanted it to be. It's not functioning the way God wanted it to function. And we can never be who we're supposed to be if this isn't the authoritative word of God. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture. If you would like to underline things in your Bible, make notes, and I, I encourage you to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and underline that word all, maybe even circle it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training of righteousness. That, or because, or for the reason of, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now that phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says all Scripture is breathed out by God, means that every word in this book has come from the Lord. It has come from His very mouth. He spoke them to men, guided them by the power of His Spirit, and it tells us that it is to equip us and to make us equipped, meaning it is all for our benefit. The word breathe throughout Scripture is frequently associated with the Holy Spirit. And so when we open this book on Sunday mornings, when you open this book throughout the week, and you begin reading the words on the pages, you're going to be allowing the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, to speak to your hearts and to your souls. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. This book and all the words that are in this book are all God-driven. God saw the entire process from Genesis to Revelation, he oversaw it. He even oversaw the parts of the Bible that we sometimes can deem as boring. Those parts when we get to our Bible reading plans, we just want to, let's get through that. He oversaw all of that. It came from his very mouth. This book instructs us on what we should believe. But we have to have a conviction concerning the truths that are found within this word. And there are some terms 
and convictions concerning God's word that I want us to become familiar with this morning. The first one is the revelation of Scripture. And when we're saying the revelation of Scripture, we're talking about how God is revealing himself through his word. And so if we want to know more about God, if you ever get a place in your life where like, well, I'm just not hearing from God, then we have to get into God's word and allow his voice to speak into our hearts. If we want to know more about him, then we have to be more in his word and allow the word to change us. The second term is the inspiration of Scripture, what we've been talking about already. This is where we understand that these words, yes, they were written by individuals, but they were spoken, breathed out by God, who oversaw every single word that we need to have in our life because he created us to live this life. And this may be beating a dead horse at the moment, but as God's people, we have to have a conviction Not just a belief, a conviction and an understanding. This is God's word. It's not just another book. But that's what the servant told the king when he brought it. Hey, we've we've found a book. The third is the authority of Scripture. Again, all these words come from God, which is why the Bible is to have full authority over the life of the believer. God's word is the measuring rod by which we live our life, and it's the measuring rod by which we see things in the world through God's lens. The fourth is the inerrancy of Scripture. This means that the Bible is perfect, because God is perfect, and God oversaw it. And if we look into the Gospels, we will see that Jesus and the apostles all agreed that the entire Old Testament was trustworthy and it was the spoken word of God. And we also see that Jesus entrusted and commissioned the apostles to go and preach the gospel, which they were to have the understanding through the Old Testament, but that's how we got the New Testament. Now, I've come across people in my life that want to say, well, what if the Bible has mistakes? If there is a mistake, which is it? Is the mistake about our salvation? Is it about eternity? Is it about creation? Is it about the miracles? Is the mistake about the love of God? Is the mistake about heaven or hell? Or how we can find forgiveness? I'm not saying when you read through God's word that there's not going to be difficult passages and there's not going to be things that or there's going to be things that we're not going to be able to fully understand. But if we struggle to believe the hard passages or the things we can't understand, then why believe the whole thing? If we struggle to believe the things we don't like, then why believe any of it? In our passage, King Josiah, he knew whose words he was hearing. And this is what he did. Look in verse 22 with me. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Takath, son of Hazrah, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus does the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus does the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. 
all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they may might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath we poured out on this place and will not be quenched. So what does Josiah do? He hears the word of God and he decides, I'm going to go seek guidance. Now, can you imagine the words of the guidance he received right off the bat were probably not the words he was wanting to hear. They're probably not the very uplifting things. It probably wasn't the message he was hoping. But we also know that King Josiah already knew things were not the way they should be. He knew that things were not going the way they should be in the life of the people. And he had to be awakened to the result that he and the people were living outside of the word of God and the will of God. And so we need this aspect and this understanding when we are to be awakened, to be awakened to the impending judgment. The message Josiah receives is simply this. Judgment is coming. I know that's not a very happy matter. It's not a laughing matter. But that is because God doesn't view sin that way. And we shouldn't either. The Bible tells us there is going to be a day when every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that God is God and Jesus is Lord. Every knee. That means all people, not just believers. There will be a day when every individual on this planet, every individual that has ever lived, will stand before a holy God. And throughout the Bible, almost 70 times, God speaks about his judgment. This hasn't been a It's been a very popular thing the last several years to make movies and songs about heaven, to write books about heaven. Books like Heaven is for Real, Miracles from Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Maybe not that one, right? And everyone loves the idea of heaven. And we should. We should love the idea of heaven. Like the old hymn says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. The Bible does speak a lot about heaven, but we can't forget that it also speaks a lot about hell. And it speaks a lot about judgment. And so I say, let us praise the Lord that heaven is for real. But let us not forget hell is too. And every day, individuals go to one or two places. Every day when individuals breathe their last, they either go to heaven or they go to hell. And the Bible states when this life is over, there are only two destinations. There's not a middle ground. There's not a purgatory. So it's either going to be heaven or hell. And the Bible tells us that without Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, then you're going to hell. And this is why as God's people, we have to be in God's word because we are called to proclaim it, to be ambassadors for it. I know that's not a cheery matter, but in his book, Erasing Hell, Francis Chan writes, it's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths We want to embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of salvation, even though it doesn't make sense to us. 
But neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. As soon as we do this, we are putting God's actions in submission to our own reasoning, which is a ridiculous thing for Clay to do. God's judgment on sin and those who are still found in sin is one aspect that makes him holy. If God did not judge sin, then he would not be a holy God. Because if he did not judge sin, that means there would be no standards, which means anything goes. Which is the way a lot of people in our world are living right now, and that's exactly how the people in Josiah's day were living. Anything goes. Because they weren't worshiping the holy God. Now, amidst of all this bad news of the coming judgment, Josiah gets some good news. Look in verse 26. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have read or you have heard. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants, And they brought back word to the king. So first, Josiah is told about the impending judgment that was coming. As we know, judgment is coming for all people. But to continue to be awakened, we must be awakened to the promise of peace. As I already mentioned, to be awakened to these truths, Josiah, he had a heart ready for the Lord. He had a mind which was not full of pride. But he was ready to be humbled. He had ears that were ready to listen and eyes that were ready to see the truth. And in doing that, he was receptive to God's word, no matter how hard it was to hear. And he repented. And he was ultimately saved from the coming judgment, from the coming wrath. He was promised peace. That word peace in the Hebrew and what the Old Testament is written in is the word shalom. It means a state of completeness. A state of prosperity, health, and success. And this is the peace we all have if we are found in Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals that all will be judged. And there's only one way to escape that coming wrath and that judgment from God for the sin that is in our life. And that is to be found in Jesus Christ. I want to spend a little bit of time in two verses in the New Testament. So you have your Bible, make your way to Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, just stay there with me for a moment. I want to walk through this. It says, we have been justified by faith. That word justified means that we have been declared righteous and pronounced guiltless. 
It was a legal term in Paul's day who was the writer of Romans. A judge would hear the guilt of an individual, but then he would render an innocent decree. And the only way one could be declared justified was if their debt had been paid in full. And so the meaning of the word for us is, though we come before God with the debt of our sin, by our faith in Christ alone, our debt is paid in full. The word carries the meaning of being restored to all the rights and privileges and passion or positions that was originally intended for us. And that's taken from the Old Testament. It's to go back and look before sin came into this world that when we are justified by faith, we are now fully restored back into the relationship with God. There is nothing to separate, him, separate us from him. Again, it's a legal phrase to reveal to us that we have been credited, credited with the sinlessness, the righteousness, and the holiness of Christ simply by faith. And so though I've mentioned that one day we are all going to stand before Christ to be judged, those who have placed their faith in Christ alone will be judged only by Christ's righteousness. That's all God will see. And because of this, Paul goes on to say that we have a peace with God. And this means where once we were only found in our sin... By now in our faith in Christ and his complete work, we now stand before God rightly. We have a right position, a right standing for God. The word peace here in Romans is written in the Greek, and it means that we are now back in harmony with God. Another word that is used throughout the New Testament to speak about this harmony is the word reconcile. And this all came because for our sake, he, being God, made him, being Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. So in him, now in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So we're once, the Bible tells us, that we were sinners we were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. We were in a state of eternal guilt and condemnation. Now by faith we are at peace with God if we are found in Christ. And our faith is in Christ's work. Paul goes on. It says that we have also obtained access. And this phrase is taken back from the Old Testament. It's speaking of the holy of holies. It would have been found in the center of the temple. The very thing that King Josiah has been restoring in our passage in 2 Chronicles 34. It was the place that only the high priest chosen by lot could go in and enter. But now, if we have our faith in Christ and we are found in Christ, we have access by faith into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. So when we pray and we gather in the name of Christ, we are in the presence of Christ and the presence of God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and by faith alone, we get ushered into the presence of the Almighty, the presence of the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the eternal, holy God. And this is done for each and every one of us because of God's love for us. Notice Paul said is by grace. 
meaning not by our own merit, not by our own worthiness, not by what we deserve. It is by grace through Christ and not our own doing. And therefore, Paul goes on by the power of the Spirit, says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that word rejoice carries the meaning of joy. But not just joy, but of boasting and exaltation. So we now boast in the hope of the glory of God. We find joy. Again, we're not rejoicing in ourselves, but we're rejoicing what God has done for us, that now we have an eternal hope because we are going to an eternal home in the very presence of God. And this is the rejoicing that we are going to get to join that we read of in the book of Revelation when all the heavenly creatures are saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I think some of us maybe this week, I know I do, just need to sit on those two verses for a while and meditate on those things and pray on those things and maybe reiterate the prayer of the psalmist where he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. King Josiah was initially told that, hey, judgment's coming. But because he had a heart for God, he was told he would see peace. And he would see God's salvation all of his days. And the salvation we have is the gift that God has given us. It's this free gift of love that's found only in Jesus Christ. And though it is free to us, it costs God everything. That's why we should have an awakening and revival. To know that there is a holy God, the creator of all things, who would love us and is for us, not against us. Let's go back to the last part of our passage, beginning in verse 29. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles 34. I loved hearing those pages turn. I know some of you are flipping through your phone now, but that's all right. Beginning in verse 29. <clears throat> then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all of the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place, and he made a covenant, which means promise, before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that was written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God and the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. So to awaken, we have to awaken to personal responsibility. When Josiah became aware of God's holiness through God's word, 
He became aware of God's impending wrath and judgment that was coming. Yet Josiah decided, I'm going to take action. Notice, though, he didn't just take action for himself, but for all the people in his life. He called everybody into this covenant. Now, the Bible reveals in Matthew chapter 12 and Romans chapter 14, we don't have time to read it right now, but you can read it later, that we all will be judged not on just what we know, but what we do with what we know. I've got bad news for you. Tax season's coming. Tax season is a great reminder of how we all are going to have to give an account for what we have. Some of us are going to have to pay for things that we still owe on, and some of us are going to get a return on what we deserve. And I, I hate taxes. I honestly do. But it's a yearly reminder that we get as God's people that there is going to be a day of judgment coming. There's going to be a day when we all will have to give an account on who we are, what we've done with God's truth, and there's going to be no way to be dishonest about it. I'm not saying anybody here is dishonest about their taxes. But all things will be laid bare before a holy God. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way to escape the death which separates us from the God of the living is to be found in Christ. The Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And as I say that, many of you are here like, yeah, I already know that, Pastor. I already know that truth. Here's a challenge. The personal responsibility part. God has placed people in your life who don't. He has placed people in your life who are lost. People in your life that if this is the last day they lived, would be going to hell. And we have a personal responsibility to share God's truth and God's gospel with them. So what is that gospel? Because maybe there's someone here who needs to hear it. God created you for a relationship with him. It is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. You may think, well, I'll just start going to church more. I'll start reading my Bible more. I'll start doing more things that are good things. But you can't remove your sin problem. But that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. See, God sent Jesus to live a life that is perfect according to his word and his commandments, his regulations, his decrees. And Jesus did that so he could go to a cross and die on that cross for the sins of the world. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death, the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you're not found in Christ, you're lost. And God has brought you here to change that. Today might need to be the day of your salvation. 
And so if you're here, and I'm not saying you've got to understand every aspect of it, but you come to the understanding, I, am, I do not have Christ. I am lost. I'm in my sin. I'm going to hell if I die. And you know you want to change that. I'm going to be standing right down here, and I'm just going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor, I, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. And I promise you, there won't be a person in this room who won't celebrate with you. But if you've already accepted this truth, then again, here's my challenge to us all. There are people in our life who are lost. And God has placed them specifically in your, loss, in your life because you're the one that can reach them. 